Hello. It must have been around 2008 when I received a call from a friend in New Jersey. Paul worked for a major US pharma design and marketing company called One World and he asked me if I could look after one of his colleagues who was passing through Hong Kong on her way to a factory in nearby Guangdong. Businessmen and women were flooding Hong Kong as southern China became the factory of the world. I was used to meeting traveling business people with factories in China, producing anything from cosmetics, toys, iPhones, and even one chap who made drill bits for offshore oil rigs. What I wasn't prepared for was Erica Betty McCarthy. Statuesque, blonde, and bubbling with New York humor and confidence, Erica bounded up to me at a popular bar in Hong Kong's Soho district. I had my tried and tested questions already prepared. How was the flight? Is the hotel comfortable? Are you enjoying Hong Kong? What do you do for a living? Oh, she replied without batting an eyelid, I design vaginas. It was certainly not the answer I was expecting, and henceforth I named her Vagina Betty. I don't think she was too impressed. What goes in Hong Kong stays in Hong Kong, she warned. Well, Erica McCarthy, I'm about to out you to the world, so here goes. Vagina Betty, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, so much. It's an honor to be here. You've uh, now, interviewed many important people, so. <laughs> Uh, and you, you are definitely the most important. Oh, now, okay. <laughs> now, now, look, I'm going to call you by your real name, Erica. Vagina Betty, as poetic as it is, is a bit of a mouthful, if you'll excuse the expression. So, Erica, please tell us what's it all about. I mean, designing vaginas is definitely up there with some of the more obtuse products coming out of China. I mean, these are not sex toys, are they? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, they're not they're not sex toys. Uh, there is a reason maybe that we went to China uh, for them, but I'll get into that later. So uh, let me just tell you what these vaginas are for. <laughs> they're actually uh, surgical simulators or healthcare training models. So one example I like to make is a CPR mannequin because most, pe most people can picture that, right? <laughs> and the idea being that you can read about how to give CPR in a textbook, but maybe, you know, you want to give it a shot before someone's actually dying in front of you, you know? Um, and it's the same with surgery, you know, surgery. Uh, so my models are used a lot for surgery, like uh, gynecological procedures, such as pelvic exam, uh, incontinence surgery, hysterectomy, or intrauterine device placement. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to be the first, uh, chance a doctor had to do one of these surgeries. So it's, a, it's really the step between the textbook and the patient. So having a chance to hold the tools, uh, get comfortable with all the steps from injection to the actual cutting, the suturing, all those things. And a lot of uh, female surgeries are actually best done through the vagina because there's already that opening there. So this was something that just really didn't exist at all. <laughs> we had a medical device company come to us uh, looking for this model and uh, they wanted all the parts to be replaceable, so replaceable vaginas, and everything should be very realistic. And we know that, um, you know, in China, as you mentioned, they produce a lot of different products, one of those being sex toys, <laughs> and they've gotten really good at cyber skins and these really realistic materials. So um, that's why we went to China specifically. Well, 
I, I, I certainly will never forget the hysterical story about your first visit to a factory in China. I remember you saying that you tested the size of the vagina with your fingers, which of course isn't exactly scientific, I might add, but makes perfect <laughs> sense. I remember you told the timid factory workers that this vagina is too small. I can only fit two fingers in. When they responded <laughs> by saying it was the correct size in China, madam, you gave them a haughty look and in your broadest Brooklyn accent, you said, well, in America, we're three fingers, make it again. Now, is that story true? Um, well, that may have been elaborated slightly, <laughs> but yes, I was only, what was I, 26 at that time, and I was traveling to China um, because we were trying to work on this first ever, basically, vaginal surgical model, model that we were trying to develop. And it just, we got a prototype shipped to us and it just didn't, it wasn't working right. So I got the idea to just go to the factory and I was, you know, showed up <laughs> very young, very blonde, very tall. And I walk into a room full of probably genius Chinese, you know, engineers who are all looking at me like, who is this woman? And I'm trying to explain to them that the vagina needs to be more open because it's during surgery. You would normally have a speculum in there. The vaginal enteritis would be much larger and you know, you really need to be able to get the instruments inside. But I had a translator at the time, of course. And I could just look at their faces each time I, I kept trying to show them with my fingers how big the vagina needed to be. And, you know, they were very professional, I have to say, but I, I wondered what they thought, you know, about American women and their vaginas through that. And especially walking through the, the factory floor and, and they had no contacts whatsoever, except to know that I, you know, was part of this vaginas, the vaginas that they were making. And, I, I wondered what they thought about the, that or even about um, American men <laughs> and why vaginas might be in that state <laughs> to begin with. But uh, no, it was a really interesting experience. Well, you can imagine what they were thinking. Um, but <laughs> how, how much does it cost to make that very first prototype? I mean, these are the most lifelike vaginas I've ever seen. Mind you, I haven't seen that many vaginas in my life. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you say that. So, you know, the first, the very first model or prototype that you're going to develop, I mean, we need to do a lot of scientific research. We base a lot of this on average female anatomy and things like that. And, and a lot of sculpture goes into it, a lot of engineering to get the parts to fit, because it's not just the outer vulva, like you might picture in a sex toy. It's, it's the pelvis and all the interior parts, you know, the pelvic floor muscles, the ligaments, uh, bladder, uterus, ovaries, all those things. So, when you're just coming up with a prototype to basically test that, you know, the proof of concept that this is going to work and that this feels close enough to the real deal, you know, <laughs> to continue, there's a lot of work that goes into that. So I would say about $20,000, $30,000 just to get, you know, that first prototype out and all the work that goes into it. Well, that's definitely not a sex toy. I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe this is a silly question, but what research do you do to produce the perfect American vagina. I say American because I assume it's, uh, I don't know, is it a different size to other vaginas? <laughs> I know the mannequins and Macy's are desi designed from living supermodels, uh, like Christy Turlington had her own model, et cetera, et cetera. Is it the same with you? Dare I hazard a guess whose vagina is yours modeled on? Well, we have many, many. Um 
but I think you'd be surprised to know that it's definitely not the perfect vagina that we're designing. It's actually quite the opposite. A lot of these vaginas need attention. They need repair. Um, they've been through some trauma such as, you know, childbirth or, or something else where they need corrective surgery. Uh, prolapse is a big issue where the vagina can actually go inside out, um, bladder as well. So lifting some of those uh, organs up is a lot of the times what what they're trying to do as they go, um, as they're practicing the surgery. So it's not in great condition. <laughs> um, having said that, um, the measurements are definitely based on, you know, databases of human anatomy scans, even going back to Gray's anatomy. I mean, there's pretty much average standards, whether it's just the distance of the hips or, you know, the average length of the urethra, length of the vagina. Um, so, uh, we take that and then we add the disease or whatever the, the goal of the model is, whether it's, you know, training on a certain device, then we just only include the anatomy we need for the most part so that they can focus on that one area. Um, so for example, <laughs> depending on how new this person might be, maybe they're just an intern in school, they're, they're a doctor, they really have never, uh, they're learning to be a doctor, they're not actually a doctor, so they they're just, there's a good chance they're going to make a lot of mistakes. So the vaginas need to be low cost. They need to be maybe $50 a piece so they can practice, make a mistake and throw the vagina out <laughs> and put a new one in. However, if you're, you know, been in practice for a long time and a new uh, device comes out, a totally new procedure for hysterectomy or something like that, you know what you're doing. So it's very important to include all the different layers and all the surrounding anatomy. And those would be, you know, for experts learning how to operate, you know, and learn that new medical device to help with the adoption of that device. Um, it's so yeah. fascinating. I mean, right, right now, once you have your prototype vagina ready to go, I assume you just take them back to America in your luggage. I mean, if your suitcase ever burst <laughs> open on the carousel, it would look like roadkill. I should know, I've seen some of the products. <laughs> I have had some experiences like that, actually a few. Uh, one time I was taking a, a catheterization model I created to a trade show in Los Angeles. Uh, and the design is modular, so you can switch out. It's a, it's a pelvis, you know, with legs and everything, but you can switch out the penis and the vagina uh, to practice on either sex. So I was carrying a few of the inserts in my carry-on. <laughs> and as I'm going through, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. And of course he pulls the bag and I'm like, here we go. And he's that's that's all it is and everyone else can see it you know he's pulling out first the penis <laughs> and he kind of just looked at me and we turned away and then he pulled up the, the vagina um and I opened my mouth to explain and he kind of sh 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 he stopped me and he said no ma'am it's it's okay you don't have to explain and and uh, I kind of wished he'd let me but <laughs> uh. I I you know I did want to but I packed up my bag and slid it back um he packed it up and slid it towards me and uh you know, I guess maybe that thing's normal in LA. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> it is. Um, but, but Erica, how did you get into this business? It's officially called anatomical illustration. Am I correct? Uh, we call it medical illustration here. So it's pretty close or biomedical illustration. Um, but that's a good question. I, I uh, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm in uh, upstate New York. And I was always drawing, you know, the animals and the plants, the, the skulls and the bones and all that stuff. Um, but not in a creative or cartoonish way or, or anything. I was more into realism and capturing all the exact details. Um, and I remember my grandfather, when I was 
kind of a, you know, maybe I was 10 years old, he read this article about a medical illustrator who drew body parts for medical textbooks. <laughs> and I remember my family all breathing sort of a sigh of relief that there was a career, you know, out there besides, you know, sitting on the in Times Square doing caricatures or <laughs> the whole starving artist thing. And uh, the idea that you could kind of marry science and, and all of that with art. And um, science was definitely one of my favorite subjects. So it was kind of a natural fit. <laughs> and funnily enough, my father was a farmer and a cow breeder. And my mother, uh, she's a nurse. So bodily anatomy and all those functions were not taboo. So I, I, I'm not very uh, shy about the topic as you can tell. <laughs> Mm, now, let's get serious. Tell us about the role your work plays in the medical world. One world has been educating and motivating patients, doctors, surgeons, and other healthcare providers since 1984. So what's it all about? Um, it's a good question. So the company was born, um, the founder, Fred Pether. He actually came from England, uh, working for Bayer and a bunch of pharma companies. And it was born from the idea as he, you know, coming to New Jersey, where it's a big, big hub for pharma companies that he was looking at what they were using for marketing tools. And a lot of times it was pens or coffee mugs. And um, he's thinking to himself, you know, there's got to be a better way to market your product. I mean, this is an actual drug that's going to, you know, save lives or, or something like that. Can the product that's marketing it not be educational or at least functional? So, for example, an artery model that opens to show patients, you know, how fatty buildup might lead to a stroke or heart attack, you know, something you can hold or you can see, wow, okay, this is what's happening inside me. A lot of people don't know what their anatomy looks inside them and they can see, you know, why taking their medication might be so important. Um, so he, he really started the company with that idea in mind. And when I started, I was a medical illustrator. So I was doing the sculptures, um, the heart that sat in the waiting room or uh, the knee that you could bend and see what your implant would look like. <clears throat> And um, as a medical illustrator, I had studied art, but I'd also taken all the pre-med courses like psychology, human gross anatomy and everything like that, like a doctor would. But as a medical illustrator, your job is to realistically represent the human body, you know, the cellular interaction or the drug mechanism or, you know, um, whatever it is in a visual way that can be really easily understood without reading a big scientific article. So um, whether that's a diagram or a line drawing, it really needs to be scientifically correct, but also easy to understand. So I was doing this medical sculpture and as I got more into it, I think it was 2010, probably not, not long after we met um, that they came up with the Sunshine Act. Yeah, and that limited, it said no giveaways to doctors. <laughs> you know, you can't just be, you can't take them out. You can't take them out golfing. You can't do this, you can't do that. So everyone just kind of freaked out, you know, no coffee mugs, no pens, but also no anatomical models. So mm. our, even though our business was educational and actually we were outside of that, like uh, government restriction, our business fell off a little bit. So we got more into the medical device, which is more surgical uh, versus pharmaceutical. And um, we found that our clients <laughs> didn't want a rigid model sitting on a base. They wanted to actually interact with the model. They wanted to demonstrate, they wanted you know, um, to actually show the real feel and the act of cutting, the puncture, whatever it would be, the suture realistically, it couldn't be a, a chunk of plastic. So these models, again, they really bridge the gap between the textbook and the, the live patient, you know, um, and they give you a chance to practice and make all those mistakes before you, you know, um, go to the real thing. Absolutely. Uh, earlier, you told me the cost of the first prototype, but since then, you're 
designs have become much more complicated. So what's the cost of uh, one vagina these days? What are they made of, for example? Uh, so to, to make the parts, um, we first design something, you know, in a digital space. We 3D print what's called the mold master, and then we, you know, make a mold around that, and then we cast it in silicone for a lot of, um, for the most part, to make a prototype or a proof of concept piece. Uh, we do a ton of testing. Uh, we test different material densities, durometers. We get the most realistic feel possible, and um, then after that, once it's <laughs> once it's verified and we're into full production mold, I would say the average cost is about five hundred dollars. Um, now our vaginal ultrasound simulator, now that's a full woman with a mod modular pregnancy belly, everything. Um, she's, she, she can basically do any ultrasound on her. You can do a trans esophageal echocardiogram, you know, in her heart, you can go transvaginally and image the fetus. Uh, and she's in the thousands. And, uh, I do have a funny story about that actually. <laughs> so, um, in the U.S., you know, again, how do you how do you bridge that gap between the or anywhere in the world between the textbook and the patient? And some of students, while they're practicing, they actually practice on each other or have had to practice on each other. And there was a recent case in Southern Florida where <laughs> the university actually got sued because the the students were told they had to practice vaginal ultrasound on each other. And vaginal ultrasound involves a probe that's introduced. <laughs> intravaginally. So imagine arriving to school one day and, and being told you need to penetrate your classmate. <laughs> um, needless to say, the course was shut down for a little bit. Um, and our simulator sold very well because it gave them a chance to practice on a, on a mannequin before, you know, a patient and, and not have to practice on their classmates. <laughs> what, a, what an amazing story. I couldn't imagine going into class one day and being told, well, you know, take your clothes off. Exactly. <laughs> Um, the One World website describes a wearable vagina. What on earth is a wearable vagina? It sounds like something Lady Gaga would wear at the Met Gala <laughs> red carpet. Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, pretty much they're elastic pants with a vagina built in. And the purpose of, of, the, of them is for actually for episiotomy training. And a lot of people hear episiotomy and they kind of, freak out because it used to be a routine procedure for a long time. It's like, you know, we went in to have a baby, they put you out and they cut you open and they took out the baby and uh, they found out later. <laughs> and we all know now that that's not the best way to do it. And even, you know, if you, if you are experiencing vaginal tearing during, during uh, childbirth, it's, it's better to let the natural tear happen because it heals better. But there was a long time that episiotomy was done and, and it wasn't needed. Um, and now we're in a phase where it's really kind of a, a bad word almost, um, but it's still necessary. <laughs> uh, there's, there's in any sort of emergency situation where there's fetal distress or um, shoulder dystocia or anything where basically the baby needs to come out or the mother or the baby will, or both will die. So it's absolutely critical to both of them that the episiotomy is performed to get the baby out, to get the baby treatment, but it should be performed well, right? So, but right now, and I've learned from actually talking to midwives and OBGN residents, they have almost no chance to practice it. So they have to be literally in the situation where it's occurring, where they're, you know, watching it and they learn on the person that first time. And, and I've heard story after story that that's how it's done. And, um, you know, there's statistics out there that 800 women a day die of 
childbirth unnecessarily. <laughs> and, you know, one of the reasons might, you know, could be this, that, that, you know, bleeding or all these different things. It's, I, I compare this one, I think to like a tracheostomy, right? You don't want a tracheostomy, but if you're choking and it's the only way to save your life, you need one. You don't want a hole in the throat, but you need one. And you, whoever, you hope whoever's doing it knows what they're doing kind of thing. So um, mm. we paired, we partnered with a world-renowned hospital in uh, Tel Aviv, Israel, uh, the Sheba uh, Center, and developed these pants. <laughs> and they work with existing birthing mannequins, which is also a thing. You can practice uh, childbirth on a mannequin. And some of the babies cry and they bleed and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, our our pants allow you to do all the steps that you would do. And, and that's half of it, you know? I mean, how realistic does a trainer need to be? It doesn't always need to be super realistic, but it gives you the chance to practice all the steps, crowning, injection of anesthesia, delivery, you know, the cutting and suturing of the material. I mean, it's, emergent, it's an emergency procedure and everyone's already stressed. So if it's done wrong, there can be really bad effects. So it's just better that you've at least practiced the situation before, uh, you know, you're with a patient, I think it helps a lot. Mm. Uh, the first prototype I ever saw looked a bit like a corpse, um, a female torso cut at the waist and along the legs, but the rest of it was quite literally a Brazilian waxed vagina <laughs> and, and a small butthole, extremely lifelike, but things have actually developed since then owing to technology and 3D simulators. So uh, how do you use 3D? Um, well, <laughs> to go back to the corpse idea, <laughs> okay. we do only, we don't, we still only include the anatomy we need, you know, we don't, if we don't need the belly button, we don't put that in, but yes, it is a bit shocking to just look at a standalone, um, vagina or a pelvis, <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's definitely been huge advancements. Uh, I would say both in the materials that we use and also the technologies. So for example, the Mia model, um, which is this, the first ever model for vaginal hysterectomy, uh, training which was developed by Dr. Doug Miyazaki, um, who's been in the business forever. And he, he basically noticed that, you know, when he, I hope he's not gonna be mad at me for saying that he's old, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was noticing that vaginal hysterectomy is what he learned when he was young. He got a chance to practice on a bunch of patients or, you know, cadavers and things like that before the patients. And, you know, as, as time went on, you know, there's been surgical uh, advances. So, there's laparoscopic surgery, there's robotic surgery, and all of those things were kind of the hip and up and coming thing. So recent interns, OBGYN interns, they, they learned laparoscopic, they learned, you know, going through the belly and inflating, you know, going in through four holes in the stomach or robotic surgery. And they found out that just using the vagina to access the cervix and the uterus was, it, it's a hole that's already there. It was, it was uh, much less traumatic. Um, and insurance companies actually stopped covering some of those like more, I guess, trendy, <laughs> advanced technological surgeries. And that, but unfortunately young surgeons had never even had a chance to, to try uh, the vaginal hysterectomy. So there's a huge gap in care. Um, so he developed this model and it's, it's very lifelike. We, you know, the bladder can leak, urine can come out. There's um, the uterine tubes or can, you know, the vessels can bleed. So you really get that real-time feedback um, which is kind of cool from a material standpoint. Um, technologically, <laughs> um, we work with virtual reality in some of our models and there's actually, think, think of, uh, okay, you're going to the gynecologist, if you can imagine it, <laughs> and you're getting an exam. Well, 
the person that's practicing this exam on the simulator has sensors on their fingers and they can actually, you know, they go in and they can be told to palpate different things through the vacuum wall, do different things. And the simulator actually tracks what they're doing, um, shows them what it looks like inside so they can see what they're actually coming up against, what they can feel, shows the anatomy and um, gives them feedback because it's almost like a video game that can, that can score them as well. So there's um, just incredible things that have been done in, the, in just the past 10 years, I would say. Absolutely incredible. I mean, you can see why America is so far advanced in the <laughs> medical world. Uh, but look, Erica, we're almost out of time. So can you tell us what you're working on right now? Yes. <laughs> as long as it's okay, it doesn't have to do with vaginas. Is that all right? Absolutely. In <laughs> fact, yeah. In fact, I haven't asked you about your other products yet. <laughs> um, so yes, one of the things I'm most recently um, working on that I'm very excited about is a bit of a funny story. So one of my clients is um, Hologic. They're a leading manufacturer of mammography equipment and their biggest conference uh, each year was fast approaching. This was two, three years ago. And they, they called me, I think a month before the conference, <laughs> um, American College of Radio, something um, in Chicago. And they said they had a situation. They had a new ergonomic mammography paddle that had recently been approved by the FDA that they wanted to show off in their booth. Uh, well, the problem was to show the pedal working, right? Or compressing a breast, you need breasts, right? Or at least one. So otherwise you can't demonstrate, you know, the compression and, and how nice it is. So they had planned to have a live model for demonstration, but as it got closer, I think someone on the team mentioned that having a topless woman in the showroom floor might be a bit problematic. So um, I put together for them this sort of Frankenstein prototype breast from this, a torso from something else. And it actually functioned really well to demonstrate how nicely the pedal uh, worked. And um, you would not believe the reaction of, past, of the people passing by the booth. I mean, it was amazing to see, okay, they like the pedal, but really all these radiologists, all these mammographers that were at the show, they had never seen anything like it. And it seemed like they'd been looking at it, for, looking for something like that their whole lives. And I came to find out that how do you, how do you learn mammography now? How do they learn? Well, they, again, they practice on each other. That's really the only way you practice on your teacher, you practice on your classroom classmate. And then, um, you know, you get, there's something called a simulated patient that you can hire to bring in, um, and practice on. But again, you, you get a couple tries because after a while, <laughs> I mean, anyone who's had a mammography knows it's, it's very uncomfortable. Um, and actually the breast tissue can, can kind of like stick to the paddle after a certain amount of time, there can be tears. So it's just not good to practice over and over. They get very exhausted from being handled. So having a mannequin that you could learn to position the breast was just something that was never heard about, never heard of before. And we, and we were pretty excited. Um, so for me personally, most of my clients are medical device companies and they just have a specific, you know, interest in creating a simulator that will, um, you know, demonstrate their device specifically, but I've always kind of dreamt of more of these models that can be used universally, universally, um, you know, for general education. So we had the idea to develop the simulator independently. And one way to do that was just through some um, government funding, basically, because we, we needed to do, invest in a lot of uh, R&D, a lot of molds, um, a lot of studies. And so I applied to the National Institute of Health uh, through the National Cancer Institute for a grant. 
And through that um, application, I had to submit a bunch of statistics uh, on cancer deaths. And through my research, you know, I found out that 20% of um, cancer can be missed at screenings. And if they look at those cancers that are missed, you know, because you have your yearly screening after age 40, uh, they're missed because of like a, most of them, a large majority are missed because the position of the breast is not correct. So there's actually a, you know, a scientific reason that having the simulator to train people that the IMF, uh, the inframammary fold needs to be in a certain position, the nipple needs to be in a certain position. And there's several different angles they do. They compress the breast to be very thin so they can, you know, scan through it and see the lesions. Um, but if it's not in the right position, if you don't have all the tissue on the paddle, if, if you didn't, if your uh, patient's arm is slightly off, all these different things, um, a, a tumor can be missed. So the American College of, College of Radiology has actually tried to address this issue in a, in a bunch of different ways. Um, and so far, nothing has really worked. Even in, uh, I think it was as recently as 2006, there was a program called Equip that was aimed to uh, fix these high image failure rates. And, and so far, uh, it hasn't been 100% uh, effective. So I, we actually think, and what we wrote in our, in our proposal for this grant was that this, this model, the simulator could really change that. And um, we made a case for how it would reduce the number of breast cancer deaths per year. And we were awarded the grant. So we're very excited to start work on it. <laughs> wow, amazing. Um... Erica, we've spoken at length about female body parts, but do you do any male body parts? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, we have a few. One of, one of actually my favorite examples to tell, because everyone's very familiar with the company or the, you know, the pharmaceutical drug Viagra. And um, that's an interesting story because it really tells how some of these models can not only just teach professionals, but also bridge the gap or, or help in conversation or communication between um, doctors and patients. So imagine you're going in to, you know, you finally have the guts to walk into the doctors and tell them that you have a problem <laughs> getting an erection and you are, you know, prescribed Viagra. Okay, so that's already difficult enough. You go home, you try it out, <laughs> and then you have your follow-up appointment. And the issue here is that the doctor has to ask you, you know, okay, how's it working? And, you know, Viagra's it, it's a great drug, but it doesn't always work 100%. So it could be the case that it's not completely working and um, your erection is not full, but then they have to, you know, the doctor may have to ask you, you know, how is it working? How much is it working? And then it gets really, really awkward. So we actually developed this model and it's a scientific model based on a actual scale of penile hardness. And there is, there's a durometer of the, of the penis that's achieved depending on the amount of blood that's, that reaches it. And we, we basically built four penises or shapes of penises next to each other so that during this conversation, the patient could point to one and kind of say, this is where I'm at. I'm at a two or I'm at a four or I'm at a one. <laughs> and it really, it sounds silly, but it's such a great tool for communication and you know, aiding in sexual health. And that's a, that's a really big part of what we do and something I'm pretty proud of. Oh, fantastic. I mean, that's going to be really, um, handy for many middle-aged men around the world. <laughs> yes. Now, if a person or organization or hospital authority wants to find out more about your products, what can they do? Where do they go? <laughs> so the company is called One World um, and we're a design and manufacturing group. So our 
uh, website is actually one world, one word, O-N-E-W-O-R-L-D, and then D-M-G for design and manufacturing group.com. And you can go to our website. There's contact info there. You can check out some of our products. You can learn about the mammal vest for mammography. And, and uh, I'm sure there's some vaginas there as well. <laughs> Look, you know, very quickly, I mean, who are you actually selling to? Because could a, mm. could a hospital in Southeast Asia, for example, call you up and say, look, we've seen your product, we, we want to buy some, or does it not work that way? Actually, very recently, due to some of these, the, the PZO pants and the mammal vest that I mentioned, uh, it does work that way. And we have hospitals in Asia now that have the mammal vest that are using it uh, in Singapore, in um, Australia, all, all around. So you can go right to the website and order those specific products. For a lot of the medical device things we do, it's still custom, but uh, I hope to expand our products that are available worldwide, um, you know, that you can just order online and, and have, you know, in the next couple of weeks. So pretty excited. <laughs> Incredible. Erica, Vagina Betty, this has <laughs> truly been an eye-opener and quite fascinating and wonderful to hear your voice again. Keep Aww. up the good work. And thank you for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you, Peter. Bye. Bye. Well, that's about it for now. But before you go, may I remind you that you can buy my book, Mud Between Your Toes, on Amazon and Kindle. And of course, you can always listen to my podcasts, including all previous seasons, on just about all the top podcast platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, CastBox, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, an iTunes store. Of course, you can head straight to my website at mudbetweenyourtoes.podbean.com. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>